John Calvin once said that every man has within him the spirit of a king. Meaning everyone wants to be exalted. Everyone wants to be elevated above others. Everyone wants to win. Everyone wants to make it to the top. Today it's all about success. For some, they're after power. For others, money. Others still, fame. Whatever it is, our, our world seems to be very preoccupied with this quest for success. But how does one succeed, though? Everyone has their own answer. Everyone has their own formula for success. One author identified the 10,000-hour rule. Have you heard of that before? Successful people only emerge after 10,000 hours of experience. For example, the Beatles, they perform live in Hamburg, Germany, 1,200 times from 1960 to 1964 before striking it big. And during that time, they accumulated over 10,000 hours of live performing experience, enabling them to succeed. Or Bill Gates. He started programming on his computer from the age of 13, and he accumulated over 10,000 hours of programming experience, enabling him to later succeed. So the key to success, according to the 10,000-hour rule, is simply time. Just spend enough time doing something, and eventually you will succeed. But we know that's not always true. I mean, how many kids spend thousands of hours playing sports, but they never make it big? Therefore, some say the formula for success is simply genetics. You're either born with it or you're not. You're either able to succeed by birth or not. Still, like I said, everyone has their own opinion, their own formula for success, and these differ. Just to give you a snapshot of our culture, look at how some notable people explain the formula for success. President Theodore Roosevelt said, the most important single ingredient in the formula of success is knowing how to get along with people, end quote. So just be a people person and you'll succeed. General George S. Patton said, success is how high you bounce when you hit the bottom, end quote. So, so just don't let failure stop you and you will succeed. In, in less eloquent terms, John Bon Jovi said the same thing. Success is falling nine times and getting up ten, end quote. Which actually doesn't make sense when you think about it, but anyway. There's famous football coach Vince Lombardi who said, quote, winning isn't everything, it's the only thing, end quote. So just be completely driven for the top and you'll get there, you'll succeed. Not everyone is so serious in their formula for success. Woody Allen said, 80% of success is just showing up. I think that's actually partly true. Mark Twain ridiculed, saying, quote, all you need is ignorance and confidence, and the success is sure. Some people just delude themselves into thinking they are successful. The eccentric artist Salvador Dali said, quote, the thermometer of success is merely the jealousy of the malcontents, meaning you know you've succeeded when everyone hates you and they're jealous of you. And then this one's my favorite from J. Paul Getty. His formula for success, rise early, work hard, strike oil. I think that's pretty true. Let me just give you one more quote. It's from author John Steinbeck because it's very true and it's very telling about even our culture today. He said, quote, It has all seemed strange to me the thing we admire in men, kindness and generosity, openness, honesty, understanding and feeling, 
These are the reasons for failure in our system. And those traits we detest. Sharpness, greed, acquisitiveness, meanness, egotism, and self-interest. These are the traits of success. And while men admire the quality of the first, they love the produce of the second. End quote. And if you catch that, that quote really sums up how things go today. If you want to succeed in the world today, you can't be kind and generous and honest. If you want to make it to the top, you've got to be cutthroat. You have to be greedy and mean and self-serving. You have to look out for number one. Pursue success. Just fight for it. Claw for it. Step on others if you have to. But just make it to the top. That's all that matters. But when you open the Bible, you find a different message, a different formula for success. First off, desiring success, desiring exaltation, it's not actually wrong necessarily in and of itself. For instance, last week we referenced this passage where the disciples are walking with Jesus and James and John, they ask Jesus to make them top in the kingdom. They, they want to be on his right hand and his left. They, they want to be on top in the kingdom. But Jesus never rebukes them for their desire. They were, they were not after earthly riches or worldly fame, worldly success. They just wanted success in the kingdom They wanted heavenly glory. That's not wrong. It's not wrong to desire spiritual success, you could call it. However, the disciples were applying the world's formula of success toward God's kingdom. And it doesn't work that way. Jesus informed them that the formula for success in God's kingdom was different than in the world. Like Steinbeck said, in the world, to get to the top, you need sharpness, greed, acquisitiveness, meanness, egotism, self-interest. But before God, if you want to be first, you'll be last. If you want to be over all, serve all. God says the way down is the way up. Make yourself as low as possible, and then you will be exalted. This is God's formula for success. You may ask, how could this be? That doesn't make sense. In the world, if you act like this, you're going to stay at the bottom forever. People will just walk all over you. You'll just be at the bottom serving people forever. But in God's kingdom, you can't even get there on your own. God has to bring you there. Yet those in this life who exalt themselves, who are prideful, arrogant, self-sufficient, God will not bring. God is opposed to the proud. He rejects those who depend on themselves, who really reject him. Yet the humble, the lowly, the meek, those who do not depend on themselves, but acknowledge their need for God and Christ, who hope in him, these God will bring. He will exalt them, he says. When you understand this point, when you understand that, that concept, then you can understand a major theme in Scripture the theme of the great reversal. The great reversal. Those who seek to exalt themselves, God brings low. But those who humble themselves under God, God exalts. The first shall be last, while the last shall be first. And the way down is the way up. 
just a great reversal. You see this theme all throughout Scripture. When you when you know it, you start seeing it everywhere. If I can, let me just give you two quick examples of it. And these two examples come from two mothers in the Bible. Both were humble, both were meek, both were low in their circumstances. God reversed their fortunes. He blessed them. He gave them both sons of promise. And in Scripture, we have recorded the songs of praise proclaimed by these two mothers. The first mother is Hannah. Remember her? Hannah was barren and childless, and her, her lack of a son shamed her. Other women persecuted her and disparaged her and afflicted her because of the shame of not having any child. And she was brought low. But instead of lashing out, Hannah humbled herself before God and just cried out to God, appealed to him. And God saw her. He heard her prayer. And because of her dependence on him, he reversed her fortunes. Hannah conceived a son. She gave birth to that son. She named him Samuel. He would go on to become the greatest and last of Israel's judges. And in 1 Samuel chapter 2, we have Hannah's song. I'll read this for you, just a snippet of it, and just notice how she describes God. He's the God of this, this great reversal. It's all opposites. She says, verse 3, Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth. For the God is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. Verse 4, The bows of the mighty are shattered. But the feeble gird on strength. It's just reversal. Those who were full hire themselves out for bread. But those who were hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven. But she who has many children languishes. It's just opposite. It's the reversal every single time. Verse 6. She says, the Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low and exalts. He raises the poor from the dust, and he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he sets the world on them. Just God's in control. And what does he do? He brings low and he exalts. If you oppose him, if you reject him, trust in yourself, he will bring you low. If you are humble, you acknowledge him, you trust in him, he will exalt you. This is the great reversal. Second example of this comes from another famous mother in the Bible, Mary, the mother of Jesus. You know, you know the story. I don't have to set this one up. But even before Jesus was born, Mary knew that God had blessed her and reversed her fortunes. After conceiving miraculously while a virgin, she knew God was doing marvelous things through her. And so she too exalts God. And her song is recorded in scripture as well. I'll read you again just a couple of verses. Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 46. Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regard for the humble state of his bond slave. Verse 51. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. 
He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. And what does he do? He has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. Again, what, what is God doing? He brings low. And he exalts. God scatters those who are proud in their hearts. He exalts those who are humble. And that, that's it. That's the formula for success then in God's kingdom, which is the only kind of lasting success there is. It's the great reversal. And speaking of this theme, can you guess what our passage in First Peter is going to be on this morning? The same theme, the same idea of this great reversal. Take your Bibles, open them now to 1 Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5. We are here nearing the end of this letter and we're almost done. I believe the next sermon on 1 Peter will be the last. Peter's concluding his letter. Chapter 5 is that conclusion. And he's given many powerful and practical truths throughout the letter for the whole church, especially helpful for those who are suffering. He's bringing these thoughts to an end here, and we come to see some of his final instructions for the whole church. Today we're going to look at verses 5 through 7. So look at it with me, and let's read together 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 7. He says, You younger men, likewise... Be subject to your elders, and all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. If you remember last week, Peter, first and foremost, he addresses the leaders of the church, the elders. If the captain of the ship falls asleep at the wheel, the the whole boat is going to go off course. And so he knows the leaders whom God has appointed, they must be true. They must point the church toward true north. And so Peter first goes over and addresses the true task, the true character, and then mostly the true heart that must be found within these, these shepherds that God has appointed over the church. It's a profitable text, chapter 5, 1 through 4, we looked at last week. Brings up the great theme of shepherding in the Bible. Now, though, Peter turns his attention toward the whole church, not just the leaders, but everyone. And he's going to bring up this other great theme of great reversal. He gives a series of final instructions meant for all in the church, so pertinent for all. And we're going to start into these instructions here this week, and we'll finish them off, finish the letter off, I think, next time. But today, though, lest we bite off more than we can chew, we're just going to look at verses 5 through 7. And from this passage on display are two essential pictures of Christian humility. Two essential pictures of Christian humility, so that you might be favored by God. This is God's success formula, after all. Two essential pictures of Christian humility. Humility, so that you might be favored by God. And what we're going to see, Peter continually sets before us 
Christ as our example. And second, only to love. Second, only to love, Christ was marked by humility. And this humility must be a mark of your character as well. These two pictures of humility must be on display in your life. For these are God's formula for success. And these pictures, they're going to show you the pathway to God's favor. And I imagine that's what you want, to be favored by God. And here's how you get that. Two pictures of Christian humility. The first one is is this one. It's twofold. Submission and service. Twofold. Submission and service from verse 5. And this concerns humility before men. Humility before men. Submission and service. Looking into verse 5. He says, You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This first picture of humility begins with submission, and it is directed specifically at those who are younger. He starts off says, You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. As the shepherds are under the chief shepherd, so those who are younger are under those who are older. Younger men here, however, does not necessarily refer only to the the men, the males. This word can and was used of both genders. Even today we still use the masculine to refer to everyone like, like mankind. It just refers to everyone. And so his words are simply for youth. And he tells them briefly to be subject to their elders. Who are these elders? Well, in the context, nothing has changed. It's not... The, those who are elderly, but it's the elders, the church leaders, the leaders of the church, just like he was talking about the elders in verses 1 through 4, the church leaders. Although it is true, those who are younger must respect and honor those who are older, here it's a specific word to the younger about submission to church leadership. But wait, wait a second, is he saying that only those who are younger are called to submit to their church leaders. So supply only to those who are younger. And the answer is no. We learned this last week. We read, for example, Hebrews 13, 17, where everyone is called on to obey and submit to those who lead in the church as God's appointed under-shepherds. We learned that last week. It's just that here, those who are younger need the reminder all the more so. Youths are eager, energetic, Impulsive. They don't want to sit around. They want to act. Get things done. Move. Progress. And this can be a good thing. The church needs the the vigor and the energy and the enthusiasm of youth. But youths need to be guided and channeled by wisdom and experience. See, rushing rivers are, are powerful forces. But if they overflow their banks, if they're not channeled... Their power becomes destructive. And likewise, youths need to, they need their energies channeled by by wisdom and experience on both sides. But they don't have wisdom and experience most times on their own. And this is why those who are older need to provide it for them, the wisdom, the experience that they need. Hence, here in the context of the local church, this is a special reminder for youths to set aside their pride, 
realize they don't have all the answers and to place themselves willingly under their leaders to submit to them, to respect their leadership. We've seen this word for submission several times in 1 Peter, if you remember. That means to arrange under, to rank under, like, like soldiers under a commander, a general. The submission, it's never forced in Scripture. Leaders are never called on to force people to follow them, to submit to them. It's always to be willful and voluntary. And earlier in 1 Peter chapters 2 and 3, we spent several sermons talking about Peter's instructions, really God's instructions for submission to authority. God wants us, his people, to be those who submit to authority because all authority is delegated from him, whether that's found in the home, the workplace, society. And you can expect the same would be true of the church, and here that's what he says. This is true for all believers, but those who are younger need to keep this especially in mind. And when I read this, it reminds me of, of Rehoboam. The story of Rehoboam from the Old Testament. You, you know who I'm talking about? Of course you do, right? You probably time to read First Second Kings again if you're wondering. Great books, by the way. Those are action-packed in the Old Testament. But First and Second Kings, the story of Rehoboam. He's the son of King Solomon. King Solomon dies. And his son, Rehoboam, takes over. He becomes king of Israel in his place. The people, they all gather together before the new king, and they're going to acknowledge him as king. But they have a request for the new king. I'll read it for you, 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 4. The people come before him. They say, your father made our yoke hard. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke which he has put on us, and we will serve you. So what did Rehoboam do? Well, first he consulted the elders, the elders who served his father. And the elders counseled him to listen to the people, to just be gracious with the people, and they will serve you forever if you're just gracious with them. But he did not like this. That didn't sound good to him. So verse 8 says, he forsook the counsel of the elders, which they had given him, and he consulted with the young men who grew up with him and served him. So he says, forget, forget the older people. Let me go to my guys, my younger guys. And what kind of counsel do you think these younger men gave this new king? They told Rehoboam to be even harder and harsher on the people. They they said to him, tell the people, verse 11 of 1 Kings 12, whereas my father loaded you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Just taking it to the next level. And so that's what he did. He listened to the counsel of these younger men. And he told the people this harsh message. And what happened? What was the result? People turned on him. They rejected him as king. They rebelled. And the kingdom was divided. This is when the kingdom of Israel was divided, the north, the south. The ten tribes gathered together. They made Jeroboam king in the north. Only is, or rather, only Judah and Benjamin remained under Rehoboam in the south. It's just an example of the folly of youth, the pride of youth, and the need for humility for the youth and respect to their leaders. Today, nothing in the heart of youths has changed. And so especially, he's saying, for those who are younger, especially for the younger, humble yourselves 
under your leaders, it will go well for you. It will go well for you in life. In the church, especially respect and submit to your elders, and you will see God's blessing. Now back to 1 Peter 5. He now turns his attention towards all the people. And this first picture of humility continues with service. Remember I said it's twofold. First, submission. Now he really turns more so to service as the picture of humility for everyone. He says in verse 5, All of you, now all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. This word for clothe yourself means to tie something on like an apron. The picture they would have understood was a slave tying on an apron to serve people. And slaves wore these special aprons to distinguish themselves from those who were free. It's possible Peter even has in mind John chapter 13, where Christ himself tied on such a garment, where in great humility he bowed down. And remember what he did? He washed the feet of his disciples to serve them. So this image all comes together of of putting on, clothing yourself with humility. It's tied into service, putting on this slave's apron of service. Picture here is uh, is of humbling yourself before others so as to serve them. And first, this humility in verse 5 is directed towards whom? He said, serve one another. Be humble towards one another. It's just like Philippians 2. In fact, I want you to turn there because we're going to see that a little bit more later on as well. So go ahead and just turn to Philippians 2 briefly now, but we'll see more of it later. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. You should know. If you are looking for a verse to memorize this week, this month, this year, start here. Just get these down, Philippians 2, 3 through 4. Speaking of humility, I don't think there are better verses in Scripture on it. And we're going to see a little bit later Philippians 2 as well. But just for now, verses 3 and 4 of Philippians chapter 2. He says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. There's no exceptions there. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind... Regard one another as more important than yourselves. That's how it is. Just treat others like they're more important than you. Verse 4, he says, Do not merely look out for your own personal interests. You do that enough. You take care of yourself just fine. But, he says, also look out for the interests of others. That's the picture of humility that we're talking about here. That's going to lead towards serving others. Philippians 2, 3 through 4. Keep up. Keep a bookmark there and turn back to 1 Peter 5 because we're going to go back to that later. The question is, are you too proud to serve? Nothing expresses humility more than service and nothing expresses pride more than wanting to be served. And so all of us, every single one of you and me should be focusing on serving one another in humility. Applies to all of us, every single one of us in here. If I can, though, can I make a special application to those who are married? I think it's, it's such a more fitting reminder for those who are married as well. To those who are married, are, are you and your spouse competing to serve one another, or are you competing to be served? 
by the other? Do you spend more energy trying to serve the other person? Or do you spend more energy trying to get the other person to somehow serve you and just do what you want? Are you putting on the slave's apron of humility to serve? Or are you putting on the the king's robe of pride to be served? And what example did Christ leave for you of those two? You know what to do. And so all of us, really, for those who are married, a special reminder, but for every single one of you, whether you're married or not, in all of your relationships, especially in the church, just just put this on. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. And when you do that, it's going to express itself in serving one another, treating others as more important, looking out for their interests. Now, going back to this idea of the slave's apron, it's a, it's a very fitting picture of humility because in the ancient world, Humility was really only found among the slaves. No Greek writer used the word for humility in a positive sense before the Christian era. The Romans regarded humility as a weakness. It was only fitting for slaves because they didn't have a choice. They had to be humble. They were slaves. They couldn't be prideful. Today, likewise, humility, it's not much of a virtue anymore. But it's still... Very fitting for Christians because we're still slaves. We're slaves of Christ. Christ modeled this humility for us, himself serving God, and we are just following his footsteps. Really, that should be all the motivation we need to pursue this humility. It's just what it means to follow Christ. He showed this to us. But if you need more motivation, he gives you some in verse 5. Peter adds, for, he says, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Translation, if you are proud, arrogant, self-serving, you're going to have God as your enemy in this life and the next. Here God is pictured in battle array against those who think highly of themselves. You might be wondering, though, okay, what's the big deal about pride, though? I mean, well, why is that so wrong? What's wrong with thinking highly of yourself? I mean, shouldn't we be all about self-esteem after all? Isn't that a good thing? Here's the problem, though. It's not possible to think highly of yourself and at the same time to think highly of God as well. It's really one or the other. And this is why God is so opposed to the proud, because they are first opposed to him. They're for themselves. They want the exaltation for themselves, the glory for themselves, not for God. So he's opposed to them. Yet on the flip side, those who think low of themselves, who only, which, which is only to think accurately of yourself, by the way, to them God gives grace. God favors them, he forgives them, he empowers them. He gives them all all the saving grace and daily grace that they need. He is a merciful and compassionate God after all. He just first wants to see a genuine humility, a, a brokenness before him, especially over sin. And that's so huge. Get that point right there. That how broken are you over your sin before God? How humble are you over your your sinful condition? 
I really think this is the most important aspect of humility. There are many, but I think this I really think this is number one, just a brokenness over your sin before God. Was this not the great contrast between King Saul and King David? Do you know what I'm talking about? Both of them sinned in huge ways before God. Saul offered improper sacrifice. David committed murder and adultery. But God harshly judged and rejected Saul. But at the same time, he graciously forgave and accepted David. Why? Well, what's the difference? They both sinned in huge ways. David, you could even say, that sounds like worse to me. But God accepted him but rejected Saul. What's the difference? It's just humility. It was brokenness over sin. God knew neither of them were perfect to begin with. Look, when Saul was confronted over his sin, how did he react? He denied it. He shifted blame. He acted proud. He was arrogant. God is opposed to the proud. When David was confronted over his sin, how did he react? He recognized his sin. He acknowledged it. He confessed it. He mourned over it. He repented of it and turned away. And then he just begged God for mercy. And God gives grace to the humble. This this is all that God wants. He knows you're a sinner. He knows you fall short. He knows there's no perfect person because of the sin problem already. He knows you need grace. Yet he has chosen to reserve this grace for those who are broken and humble in spirit before him. That finds favor with God. And if that's you, if you are humble, if you're broken over your sin before God, it's going to change you. It's going to change the way you live. And first, before men, that's going to express itself in service, in compassion. When someone sins against you, you're going to be gracious with them. You're going to be patient with them. You're going to forgive them. Likewise, you're going to ask for forgiveness when you're the one who sinned. That's how a broken person acts. This humility before one another is just so important. This is the clothing we need to be wearing all the time. Let's put this on and wear this all the time. Think on your sin this morning. The sins you struggle with, the sins which keep popping up, do you confess them or deny them? Do you acknowledge them or hide them? Do you grieve over them or or do you enjoy them? Are you broken over them or are you still proud? God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And we desperately need his grace. So humble yourself. And first, let this humility be expressed before men in the form of service. First, in submission to those who lead. Secondly, more so, in service. It's going to lead us now to our, our second essential picture of humility. Now, second essential picture of humility. First, there was humility before men, submission, and service. Secondly, now, we have another picture from our passage. It's humility before God, acceptance, and trust. It's also twofold. Acceptance and trust, verses 6 and 7. Let's read those again, 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7. 
Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So like we saw, one dimension of our humility should be, toward, should be horizontal, you know, before one another. But another dimension must be vertical, that is, before God. And that's really the more fundamental dimension. Whereas the picture of our humility before others looks like submission sometimes, but always service, the picture of our humility before God looks like acceptance and trust. I'm going to explain that. Let's start with acceptance. He says, verse 6, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. This mighty hand of God is mentioned often in Scripture, represents God's absolute sovereignty, his power. And by his hand, by his sovereign might, God both judges and subdues his enemies, but also rescues and delivers his children. God's hand can be like a hammer, just shattering and crushing those beneath it. But his hand can also be like a shade, protecting and comforting those beneath it. Now here's where Peter is going with this, though. You see, he's talking to Christians who are suffering. And do you know where that suffering comes from? It comes from God's hand. God's hand is responsible for, chapter 4, verse 12, the fiery ordeals among them. We've been talking about trials and sufferings a lot in 1 Peter. He talks about it a lot. And we have learned that these afflictions come to us from God. You ask, well, how could God do that? It sounds terrible. How could he do that to his own? Yeah, although sometimes painful, these trials are for our good. For through them, God is testing us, purifying us, refining us, just like gold is refined by fire, only to make it better. God's mighty hand is putting us through the flames of trials to perfect us. That's what he's doing. That's what we've learned. And what Peter is saying here now is you need to accept this. You need to accept what God is doing in your life. Some people, when trials come, when difficulties come, they just fall apart. They wonder, how could God let this happen to them? How could he do this? Doesn't he love me? They, they doubt God. They turn on him because of difficulty in their life. They lose hope. They fall. They fall away. Forget it. They just refuse to accept that God could possibly be working for good through this not good thing happening to them. They can't accept that, so they're out of there. They turn against God. They, they fight back against the mighty hand that's working in their life. Of course, this is all wrong. Instead, you need to understand what God is doing in your life by his mighty hand and accept it, even embrace it, welcome it, because it's purifying you. Grow from it and endure. This is what it means to humble yourself under God's mighty hand. Remember, God gives grace to the humble. He wants you broken, meaning totally dependent on him, but he's not going to crush you. He's not going to crush you with his hand. He's not going to test you beyond your ability. As verse 7 says, he cares for you. 
If you just acknowledge him, your, your dependence on him, if you cling to him and endure, then when the time is right, what's he going to do? Verse 6 says, he will exalt you. Matthew 23, verse 12, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. It's the reversal. To exalt means to lift up, to rescue, to deliver. God will rescue you from your troubles. It's going to be, though, according to his timetable, according to his plan, and part of your humility before him is accepting that. It may not always be in this life, but you need to just remember that this life, it's a vapor, it's a flash, it's a blink of an eye before eternity. And as Matthew 24, 13 says, it's the one who endures to the end who will be saved. God's all about timing. You just need to trust his timing. Don't, don't fight it. God let the Jews suffer as slaves for 400 years in Egypt before delivering them. Several generations passed away without seeing his deliverance in this life. But he knew what he was doing. It was according to his timetable, his plan. And you need to trust that. That's how he receives the glory. Trust God's timing in your life that he might be glorified. Don't try and manipulate people or circumstances sinfully just to gain control of your hardships and ease your suffering. God doesn't want you to sinfully take matters into your own hands. He wants you to humble yourself under his hands and wait that he might exalt you. Trust him. What trials are you facing in life right now? What's going on? Poverty? Sickness? Disease? Marriage troubles? Maybe singleness? Maybe infertility? Whatever. Accepting these difficulties doesn't mean you don't do anything about them. You know, if you're broke, it doesn't mean you just accept it and you never look for a job. That's not what we're talking about here. Rather, it means you acknowledge and accept God's working in your life And get this, at the very least, you're not going to sin to change things. You get that? You're not going to sin to change things. You're content with God's plan. You're going to do what's right. You're going to do what's responsible. But you're not going to sin to get out of it. Now, let me give you some examples. Put some some flesh on this idea. Pretend you're, you're a single person. And you want nothing more than to be married. But you just you just can't find a good Christian spouse. Can't find them. There is this one person, though. But he or she, they're an unbeliever. Now, you know, yeah, okay, God's word says not to marry unbelievers, but you're tired of being single for so long. You're getting older. You want kids before it's too late. All your friends, are they're getting married. They're having kids. You're, you're like the last one. Your singleness, it's a real trial for you now. You're anxious over the future. So what do you do? You marry that unbeliever. You've just committed a great sin before God. Why? All because you were not willing to humble yourself under his mighty hand and accept the trial he brought into your life. You were unwilling to wait for God to exalt you at the proper time. Look, humbling yourself under his hand doesn't mean you don't you know, go out there and look for that Christian spouse and do what you can. That's fine. But it means you don't sin to get your way. You don't sinfully take matters into your own hands to get out from under this trial, to escape. 
Maybe another example. Maybe for you, finances are tight right now. Tax season, rolling around. You realize you're going to owe more money than you thought. So you think to yourself, if I just smudge one decimal point, it's going to save me thousands of dollars. And you're you're tired of struggling with money. You're you're tired of, of being poor, being broke all the time. People look down on you for it. It's a real trial for you. So what do you do? You cheat. You too have just sinned before God. Why? It's all because you were not willing to humble yourself under his mighty hand and accept the trial he brought into your life. There's no blessing in this life or the next apart from God's grace. And you don't find his grace by sinning, by being prideful, by by trusting in yourself, by depending on yourself. You find God's grace, he's promised it, when you humble yourself under his mighty hand. You accept what he's doing and you trust him in your life. Now understand, Peter understands that there's fear here. This brings up some fear, some anxiety. If you don't, if you don't cheat on your taxes, how are you going to pay your bills? How are you going to survive? If you don't marry that unbeliever, what if you never get married? What if you never have kids? These fears, they just start popping up. These, these worries over the future, these anxieties, they just start popping up. God knows this. Your trials and difficulties in life can make you anxious. What is anxiety, though? Is it not just a lack of trust in God over the future? Isn't that pretty much the definition of anxiety? A lack of trust in God over the future. That's why you worry. That's all it is. That's, and that's why anxiety is a sin before God. It's because you're trusting in yourself for your future. And of course, you don't see how it's all going to work out. So you worry. You're afraid. You tremble. You're anxious. You stay up at night. So on. It's because you're not humbly just trusting in God, which is what he wants. Anxiety then grows like a weed. What does it do? It chokes out your fruitfulness before God. Isn't that what weeds do? They pop up and they steal away the resources, the energy from the good plants. They disable them from bearing fruit. That's what it does. And those of you who who struggle with anxiety, you know it just robs you of your fruitfulness before the Lord. So here's a million dollar question. What should you do about this if that is something you struggle with? It's very simple. And it's in verse 7. As you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, what should you do? Verse 7, therefore cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And this is so great here. Just He says just cast your anxieties on God. It's like casting a net into the sea. Just take your concerns, your fears, your troubles and cast them onto God. And this is nothing other than trusting God. Trust him for your future. Trust him to look out for you. It's not a misplaced confidence because he cares for you. And this trust is the second part of this picture of humility before God. Remember, it started with acceptance and then it ends with trust. Look, you can't just just throw away your trials in life. You can't. There's nothing you can do about it sometimes. You're stuck with your trials. You can't throw them away. But you can... Throw away the anxieties and the fears that come with them. You can do that. Just throw them to God, he says. Hand them over. Trust his hand. 
Know that he's not going to crush you with what you're going through because he cares for you. And when the time is right, even, the same hand that might be putting you through the fire of difficulty in life, it's going to exalt you. It's going to lift you up this life or the next. And then think about this. This is great. We've been talking about these great reversals in Scripture. Here's another one for you in in a sense. Here's what you do. You take, take your burdens. They, they weigh down on you like a yoke, like a heavy yoke. They're just crushing you under their, their weight. Take those, just hand them over. You give them to God. He's going to take them from you. You take your, your troubles and just pass them off to him, your anxieties, give them to him. In return, he's going to give you his yoke to bear. And, and what is his yoke like? Matthew 11, 28 through 30, Jesus said, Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. You you just cast your anxieties and your troubles on God, and he gives you back peace. He gives you back rest and comfort for your soul. Or it's just like Philippians 4, 6 through 7, which reads, Be anxious for nothing. No exceptions. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's how you do it, by the way. You may ask, well, how how do I do it? How do I cast my anxieties? It's by prayer. That's how you do it. You pray your dependence on God. And notice in that verse, there's no promise that your troubles will just disappear. It's not the promise. The promise is something better, that when you cast your anxieties on God and pray to him, the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, is going to come upon you and guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. That's better. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. This is the picture of humility before God. It's acceptance, it's trust, and it brings with it God's true blessing in this life and the next. Humility before others, humility before God, both are are so essential to the Christian Life. You can see why Peter wants to end his letter nearly on this note. If you get this right, if you just get this humility concept right before God, before others, you're going to see a blessed life here and hereafter. And all the more so, lastly, this just it's what it means to follow Christ. The example of Christ is never far away in Peter's mind. And he knows that indeed Christ models for us perfectly the humility we've been talking about. Finish things off. Turn back to Philippians 2. I told you we'd go back. Just go back there to Philippians chapter 2. We read verses 3 and 4 earlier, which is all about the need for humility. Right after this, he goes on to say, Philippians 2 verse 5, Have this attitude in yourself. What attitude? Humility, what he was just talking about. Have this attitude in yourselves, 
which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Think about the, the four pictures we saw today, really two twofold pictures, submission and service, acceptance and trust. Did not Jesus model these pictures of humility perfectly? I mean, did he not submit both to God and to man, willingly enduring execution on the cross? Did he not serve both God and man, not only in bowing to wash the disciples' feet, but also in dying to pay for our sins? Did he not accept God's perfect will in the Garden of Gethsemane, embracing that will even to the point of death? And did he not trust God, his plan, his timing in all things? See, before others, before God, Jesus perfectly showed us what this humility looks like. He showed us what it looks like to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. He knew something. He knew that when the time was right, the cross before the crown, he knew that God would exalt him. And let's finish it off, Philippians 2, verses 9 and 10. He says, For this reason also, his humbling himself, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. This life is all about following Christ. Follow him in his humility and you will follow him in his exaltation. It's not to say that we will be exalted as Christ, but, but he promised glory to those who follow him. It's not wrong to desire that glory. It's not wrong to want to be with him in his kingdom, to desire that spiritual success. But how do you get there, though? It's through that great reversal. The way down is the way up. And if you learn this lesson of true humility, only as you follow Christ, you, you clothe yourself with it before God and others. And when the time is right, he will bring you into the glory of his Son. Let's pray. God in heaven, we, we exalt your name right now, first and foremost. You are the God of glory, the perfect God, the one true God, Father, Son, and Spirit. We exalt in you now, Lord, and we know you're, you're a mighty God with a mighty hand who works in our lives. We have the promise that you work all things for good for those who love you, and, and that's us. We do love you, Lord. So help us now to trust your hand, to trust your working in our life, to see what you're doing, and even the difficult things in our life, even to embrace them, simply to endure while trusting you. Because we know that just like our Savior, that the cross comes before the crown, suffering before the glory, and that, that's for us as well. You've promised that glory for us as well. Help us to, to live for that, to set our sights on that, and to endure whatever comes here in this life. We love you and thank you so much for that goodness. That, that's how we can rest assured because we have a good God who cares for us. Lord, you care for us. And that's, that's a joy to think about. The God of the universe cares for us. May we rest in that care and may we uh, express your care for us and our care for others. 
seeking to be humble and serving one another. In all things, Lord, just help us to reflect our Savior. That's what it's all about. May we follow him in his humility before men and his humility before others so that one day we may join him in his exaltation. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.